the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. You can find us all sorts of places. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, plus wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you do listen on a podcast and you're thinking about it right now, why don't you text it to a friend? There's a little share button right there. Uh. Just text it to a friend and say, hey. These guys are subpar. Just <laughs> listen to how subpar they are at half the speed. They, right. they speak words, and sometimes I like it. If you want to share it, or you can tweet it, or repost it, or live journal it, all sorts of things, that actually really does help us out. And if you have, we thank you so much. And uh, we take a deep dive into all sorts of topics. Some days end up feeling a little more political or a little more faith-based. Sometimes it's sort of a smattering of the two. But uh, here's, here's something that I, I have no idea where we're going to end up with this one. So that's terrifying, right? Yep. Uh, federal government reinstates death penalty, plans to kill five inmates in coming months. What's going on here? So Attorney General William Barr, uh, who was nominated by President Trump last year, has ordered that the federal death penalty be reinstated. The federal government hasn't executed an inmate since 2003 when courts halted them over concerns about the controversial combination of the three drugs that are used. So they're using a different way now. Uh, in response to Barr's announcement, the Bureau of Prisons has scheduled execution dates for five men currently on death row, it says, in, de- in December and January. For context, since the 1970s, when the Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment could resume, the federal government has only executed three inmates. So we've wow. executed three since 1970, and we've got five ready to, uh, in, in theory over the next year here. Uh, and uh, currently there are 60 inmates on federal death row, including high-profile criminals like the Boston Marathon bomber and the Charleston church uh, shooter named Dylan Roof. Uh, and so um, uh, can I just tell you, I'm as I get older, I have a lot of like gray areas in my politics and yeah. the things I believe uh, politically. Uh, the death penalty is not one of them. Okay. I on. think I am increasingly... Uh, have a hard time um, um, rationalizing a pro-death penalty with a true pro-life ethic over all of uh, all over my politics or all over what I believe in. And so yeah. um, and for me, the very fact that uh, that there are documented cases hmm. in which innocent people have been killed. That's right. Uh, and people might say, well, that's that's a real minority. Well, it's a real minority until it's you or someone you yeah, love. Right. Uh, is enough for me to say that's not, you know, that, that that's not a humane way to go about things. It's not right. And I don't think that the answer 
uh, say to somebody taking a life is to take their life. And statistics show it is not a detriment that people believe. I think it just makes us in a sick way feel better hmm. that we are able to exact the ultimate judgment upon somebody who did heinous crimes. And I just, man, when I read these things, when I read this, when this came across my Twitter timeline, whenever it came out, I was just sad about it. I just, I was just sad about it. Do you think there are other arguments for it? I mean, obviously there are other arguments for it, and we don't have anyone in the studio right now that is, because yep. I'm, I'm with you. Um, I don't know how to say it any better than you just did. It's I, one of the things that I enjoy about this show is we'll sometimes kind of play the other side on purpose just to sort of like, oh, well, what about this? What about, you know, just to sort of wrestle through things. I have a really, 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 really hard time understanding this kind of justification. Maybe it's yeah. fiscal. Like, is it, it are people making the case that it's more expensive sure. to keep people in prison for life than it is? To execute them? Yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure how much money you're saving, but it is. I mean, okay. it's so expensive it. to keep people alive in prison. Uh, it fills up the prisons, all of this stuff. But I think it's a people think that, and again, you and I are kind of on the same side on this one, but I think that pro-death penalty people, and feel free to write us. We'll put this article up. You can write us on Facebook. Uh, I think pro-death penalty people tend to think that it's that it's the deserved judgment. Like you take a life, we take your life, that kind of thing uh, for the most heinous of crimes and uh, that it's that it's ultimately judgment. And I think people are uh, people I've talked to about it tend to believe that it will stop people from doing those crimes, even though statistics say otherwise um, that that, you know, if you know that if you were to kill that person, you might be killed, uh, that you won't go ahead and do that. Yeah. And I don't think that ends up being the case. I just think uh we rightfully as Christians talk so much about being pro-life and I'm, I, I believe that with all of my heart uh, being pro-life, the way to say it now, right. is from the womb to the tomb that we want to be pro-life. And um, so we want to fight against abortion. We want to fight against other things. Well, I, I don't think that killing people, even the most hardened criminals uh, in which we do believe in redemption. And we do believe that, that God works powerfully, even in, these things, or else we wouldn't be planting churches and prisons and other things. Yeah, right. Um, if we if we believe those things, pro pro life across the board. I just think it's hard to to really um, come to a a spot where you can rationalize and say, except when it comes to the worst of the worst, and then we're going to be okay with killing them. Yeah, uh, Shane Claiborne wrote a book a few years ago called uh, "Executing Grace," and here's here's part of that book. He said. We now are invited to extend that same grace to others. We are to be like God and forgive. We're to see people who do evil with the possibility that they can be healed. And we are to extend to them the same grace God extends to us. We are all victims of the crushing power Mm. of sin and all in need of liberation, which feels like a sermon. Like that feels like Jesus. And I'm trying really hard not to be naive here or to be so idealistic, but I have a very difficult time understanding why or how a Christ follower, Mm -hmm. uh, one who recognizes what it is, the weight of what we've been forgiven, what it means to have, to be a new creation, to still be in favor of um, executing even, even the worst of criminals by our metrics. Can you help me understand how somebody with a Christian ethic could, could still hold this position. I don't because I've, I've increasingly don't hold it and I'm not sure I ever have. Um, but again, I think it's what we said before. I think there's a detriment. I think people go to the verses in the Bible that say an eye for an eye 
realizing that that Jesus kind of uh, says has some things to say to that later on. Um, But again, I mean, this is why we've got a Facebook page and other things. I would love to hear from people because I have a lot of friends out there and a lot of uh, well-meaning people who are pro death penalty. And so tell us why we would, we, we are, would love to know uh, what that thought process is. If you're, especially if you're a person who claims to be pro-life and feel strongly about it, what is it about criminals and the death penalty to where uh, you could go down that road? Cause I don't, I'm with you, man. I don't, I don't understand it for me taking my faith out of it. Just the fact that our, that our, our, our uh, criminal justice system doesn't get it right a hundred percent of the time. Right, right. It's enough for me to take the death penalty off the table. Like Agreed. that's Agreed. that is enough to take it. It's 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 enough of a tragedy for an innocent person to stay in prison their whole life. But if it's even that more of a tragedy to lose their life unjustly, um, if there was, in your view, a just time to lose your life. Uh, and so that alone. But then when you add the faith element to it, I personally and pastorally just do not see. Uh, how we as Christians get there. It just feels so flawed. And I really, I'm not being hyperbolic. I really, really would love to hear like a, like a thoughtful patient defense of, or case for why this is a, a healthy, godly Christ-like way forward. And uh, man, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to get there. Like it's just, it's so deplorable to me. And so heartbreaking, again, often that the party that is seen as most loudly banging the pro-life drum yes. uh, would also have the party that uh, has the most amount of support for this reinstatement. And mm-hmm. I just I think that's really, really unfortunate. Yep. But I think it has to go more than just us feeling bummed about it. Like, I think it's us using platforms like this and using spaces like coffee shops and dinner tables to have conversations about why why this is wrong and w- what we can actually do about it going forward. Absolutely. Kind of speaking of that a little bit, particularly in our family systems, uh, coming up next, I want to talk about how we build resilient faith in our children and how we don't. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. Brian just threw a pen across the studio. It's, it was like one of those Sharpies pens that smelled. That's did, just, did it, where'd it go? It landed on the bookshelf over there and, oh. and it's stuck. So that's sort of a win. Not, oh, totally. Not where you were intending it to go, but... That is 100% where I was intending it to go. Oh, I thought you were aiming for the garbage. No, 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 no. No, I'm not throwing out a good pen. I just didn't want it near me anymore. Let's <laughs> oh. <laughs> do this. hitting news <laughs> on the common game. Brian threw a Sharpie across the office. And it landed. Oh, boy. All right. You can find us a couple of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. All the previous shows are there, plus we're podcasted. You guys know all this by now. Anywho, I, uh, I teed it up a little bit, and this is not from ChristianityToday.com. It's from ChristianToday.com. I do, yes. Did you know there's a difference? I did, because I've looked at both of them. It, that feels like the people at Christian Today were being very opportunistic. And they uh, said, okay, when people type Christianity Today, but they misspell it, they're going to come smart. to us. That's, that's really a, smart. That's a wise move, I think. When I when I bought IanSimpkins.com, I also bought Simpkins with a P, because I knew so many people were going to misspell it. Wow. To just have it redirect. And it costs like $9 a year. So I'm like, yeah, I might as well get the wrong spelling as well. Is that right? It's true. All right. Uh, so here's the headline that I teed up, and I want to get your feedback on, mostly because you're much further down the, the field here with the child-rearing thing. So the title is How We Build Resilient Faith in Children and How We Don't. Help us out, Brian. 
Yeah, I just really thought of something funny, by the way. Actually, when I read this, I thought it was ChristianityToday.com. Now that I think about that, <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, so it's this question. And like you said, I've got a I've got a daughter who's about to be a sophomore in high school, a, Crazy. a son who's going to be in sixth grade, and a daughter who's going to be in fifth grade. And so this question goes through your mind a lot. How do you um, raise children not only to understand the faith, not only to grow in the faith, but also that when they leave your house— uh, they're going to remain in the faith. And that's one of, something we talk about all the time, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. uh, people go to co- kids, go to college and they leave the faith. I just had somebody come up to me after church on, yesterday or on Sunday. And they said um, uh, the story that I'm sure you've heard many times, like, hey, my son raised in the faith, very excited about church, you know, uh, kind of raised that story and then left and is now really questioning. And you're like, I, I, I tried to encourage them by saying, I hear that story a lot. Yeah, same. Uh so the question here is, uh, how do you keep and teach your kids uh, not only what the faith is, but how to grow? Yeah. Uh, and so that's the, the what's going on in here. And the author starts with a very interesting premise. Uh, it says, actually, developing lifelong resilient faith in our children is more than just one thing. And although we recognize the family as the powerhouse of spiritual nurture, it is also the responsibility of the whole church. That's right. Everyone. Whether that be through prayer, welcome, or example, or getting alongside a family, we need to be participants in helping our children to thrive. It's not the sole responsibility of the children and family worker, even if we pay them. And so that is that that kind of sets the premise here, that the entire church needs to look at their children as not just the responsibility of the parents, and also just not the responsibility of the children's ministry director and the volunteers, but it's on the whole church to kind of build into kids' lives. That right there is a statement that's uh, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty different. Well, I, I like the way that the article is organized. So this is Kay Morgan Gurr, and she says, "As my as per my usual approach, I'm going to ask questions for you to ponder and not give many answers. Mm-hmm. Which, I, especially when you're talking about kids and child rearing, it's like it can be so." volatile and people's emotions can get so worked up. So, you know, raises some questions. So I'm going to, I want to share some of those and then maybe get your feedback on ones that you think belong on this list. Ones that shouldn't be there. Things that maybe you would add. And like as a parent, you know, which ones do you think you've done well and which ones are you hearing? You're thinking, Oh man, I don't think I do that at all. So the first one is think about your church community. As I've already said, parents have the prime responsibility, but faith development is a whole church undertaking. You were just saying that, but goes on to say, where do we create space for children to encounter the living Jesus for themselves rather than just sharing an out of context, two dimensional story. Do we give Mm -hmm. them the full story of the Bible in context warts and all? And I'll just say this. There are a lot of them and the space to ask the difficult questions without judgment. Is there space for the whole, church family to pray together in a way that all can engage with, which again, given your, you know, your church context, or maybe you don't have a church context at all. Some churches, um, insist on families worshiping together. And some say, this is the one hour I get <laughs> like where yeah. it's just me and my spouse. So I'm really grateful for a child specific ministry. I don't think either is right or wrong necessarily, but there's certainly good questions to wrestle with. Yeah. I certainly see the value of having kids in worship all the time, but then I also very practically, I'm like, man, I, I, I like that my kids are getting some individual attention. And yeah, this and right. That. And so we try to walk a line there a little bit in our church. But um, no, this is hard. Like uh, a lot of us don't feel equipped when our kids have these hard questions. Right? Right. We're, not, we're not ready for them. We're, we don't know ourselves how to answer them. 
And, and so it becomes a lot easier to kind of stick to the flannel graph stories and the ones that are easy uh, and not ha- cause them to have to wrestle with things that, quite frankly, they're likely to wrestle with once they're out of the nest. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Let me all right, let me just give you uh, the other questions that she raises, and then uh, I'll get your feedback. Uh, what dialogue do you have with the children in your church? Are they listened to without feeling patronized? Do you give space for peer-to-peer support? That's a good one. Um, do we celebrate milestones in a child's life, moving schools, achievements, birthdays? And what about those key spiritual moments in a child's life? Mm. Not just the baptism or the confirmation, but those moments when a child is, has been impacted by a greater understanding of God. Do we dismiss what appears to be the child quote, becoming a Christian yet again when it's actually a child accepting Jesus with a new level of understanding? Mm. Are we allowing our children to be a part of the action, to be active participants or even the instigators of mission? That's a great question. Do we make space for and encourage the practical outworking of their compassionate responses to the world around them? I love that question. Are they allowed to call the church to action on issues or yeah. areas of opportunity that may have been overlooked. I feel like Jesus has some things to say about the proximity children are have to the kingdom. They'll sometimes see things that, you know, us adults who are tired and beaten down can't see. And says, let me, let me sum up all that up. Are our children welcome into our communities, introduced to Jesus in every possible way and given the space to respond? Do they have the space to talk out their faith and be listened to? Do we celebrate both them and, and their faith journey? Do we encourage their participation and opinion in both mission and service? And are their families supported? I love all of these questions, and I think they're so important that we grapple with. Yeah, especially as a church community. Like, how are we building into parents and into kids? And these are such great questions. And, and taking a little bit to the parent side, I do know as my kids get older, and, and you might already feel this way, but if not, you're going to feel this way at some point soon. It just all goes so fast that sometimes you look back and you're like, oh, all the things I always wanted to do with my kids. Yeah, right. I, I'm now like, you know, we're, we're we're really far down the line here. And I would say it's never too late to start Yeah, and uh, give yourself some grace. But understand that, you know, raising your kids to understand who Jesus is and what he has done and the importance of the church and all these other things. While a part of the church community, uh, the family obviously is the major driver of this. And yeah. so I would encourage parents out there, if you're like, I've already failed, you got time. Like, go ahead yeah. and jump in. That's a good word. Take baby steps and uh, and then look to the church for support and how they can uh, help build you up. And, and not that any of these things are bad, but it, what, what she's describing is way deeper and more profound than simply studying for a test, right? Yeah. I'm obviously pro-scripture memorization. What she's talking about here is more than that. Yep. And it also, the thing that I love about this is it requires some sacrifice on our end as adults to saying, hey, are you giving them space to speak into areas of ministry, to speak into the things that they see in the world or in the church? And that, I think, will take some sacrifice on our part to mm-hmm. actually tune our ears to listen to the kids in our midst because I've, I've completely bore witness to this where yes. a 12-year-old sees something so much more clearly than all the big important adults in the room, yeah. and I think... I, I want more and more our church communities to reflect that, that the kids are not, they're not a part of the church in the future. They're a part of the church right now. Absolutely. And how do we actually put our money where our mouth is to allow them to be cultivated, you know, in a really holistic sense? Yeah. I think we all realize we all want our kids to grow. We all want yeah. them to understand Jesus and we've got to be strategic about how that's best done. That's right. Well, coming up next, uh, this mom started a viral trend and now she regrets it. What is that trend and why does she regret it? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with um, Brian Fromm. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. 
I thought what it is. I was going to do a whole bit there, and you you said it so quickly. You love your name so much. <laughs> couldn't even let the comedy of the moment just for a second. What were you going to do with it? Well, I can't. Oh, we'll I'm save gonna, it for I later. Yeah, I'll save it for later. Okay. I'll save that comedy gem for later that I'm sure people with bated breath. I can't <laughs> wait. Can't wait to see what Ian does. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Plus, we're podcasted. Some of you already know that because you're listening via podcast. If that's you, thank you so much. If you like, subscribe, and review, that does actually help us. It really does. I know that it's weird sometimes to hear disembodied voices say, please do this thing because it helps, but it actually does. And uh, if you already have, we really appreciate that. So I teed it up a little bit. Here is the headline. Uh, this mom started a viral trend. And now she regrets it. What is this story all about? So any of you uh, probably have seen in the last 10 years this whole uh, viral trend of the gender reveal party, right? So uh, interestingly, like this is this started just after we started having kids, but uh, it's the concept. Oh, so you never did it? No. In fact, you know, we didn't learn the gender of our children until they were born. Any oh, of them. Yeah. So old school. Old school of me. Old school. My theory was like, there aren't many ways that you can be legitimately surprised in this world. So I went for that. But I'm fine with people. But was it even that much of a surprise? It's literally a 50 50 chance. Has anyone ever like flipped a coin and been shocked? (laughs) I was shocked. But there's the the build up. There's the build up. What is it? What is it? But I totally get why people find out. And but now it's turned into like this whole thing where, you know, they'll hit a pinata and out will come pink or blue and or they'll have a cut of cake. Like dust, right? <laughs> oh, they'll, man. they'll cut a cake. They'll, but you know, you, now they're trying to get ultra. Everyone's trying to be really creative, like punt a football because I'm a football player or whatever. Oh else. yeah, I've seen I've seen more of the fails than I have the actual successful ones. And then, um, so it's all of those types of things. And the woman who started the gender reveal parties, she was the first one to do it, or where it became a viral sensation in 2008. Her name is. Jenna Carvunidis for Carvunidis. Oh, well done. And uh, she'd had several miscarriages and was like, oh, I'm finally at a point in the pregnancy where I know if it's a boy or a girl. Uh, and so the, she did a reveal with, I believe, a cake or something. And so she had a daughter. But now she is, uh, she says she's against it. She started to feel guilty. She said, then I started to realize that non-binary people and trans people are feeling affected by this. And I started to feel bad. And I'd realized something bad I'd released something bad into the world, she said. Her daughter, uh, who had been the motivation for a party 11 years ago, doesn't conform to gender stereotypes herself, opting for uh, suits and blazers rather than dresses. And she said, uh, let your kids be who they are. So uh, what I thought was a really funny story at first turned kind of serious, but... Uh, take the funny side here. Did you guys do the gender reveal? Uh, are you tired of them? Are you pro gender <laughs> reveal? Have you ever been invited to one? What, where are you at with us? Uh, when we first got pregnant, and by we, I mean her, uh, I, I asked her, and she, I love my wife for so many reasons. I, I asked her if we wanted to do some kind of gender reveal something, and she was like, who would even want to come? <laughs> and she wasn't being like despondent. She's like, what a weird thing to invite people to. And again, I'm not knocking anyone who has. Yep. Some of my friends have made really adorable videos, things that I've watched multiple times because they're really endearing and really sweet. Um, I've seen a, a, a bunch go poorly. I've seen like pinatas fall on people's heads or <laughs> they'll pop the balloon and it's green. Yep. And they're like, what's green supposed to be? You know, like there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. Um I will tell you this, though, a pet peeve of mine, uh, and I've seen this more from the dad's response than the mom's, uh, I know going. is once the gender is revealed, 
they act like children. Yeah, don't be disappointed. Like they're they they're really uh, yeah they're really mad. They're really upset. Generally, the dad who wanted a son. It, yeah, and, right. And then they I've seen a couple where they like storm off and I'm yeah, like, your kid's wow, going to see that. Yeah. Good example, man. Like this is <laughs> so that that bums me out a little bit. And maybe that's a different conversation for a different time. But I, I think like there is something to be said about our hyper obsession with knowing, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think about even I was listening to a podcast a couple of days ago about the screening that you can get to discover the risk that your child has for Down yes. syndrome. Yep, yep, yep. And I would love to tackle that topic sometime because that that to me is a whole other heartbreaking swirl of emotions and science and like finding out like that the gender thing is as much is a much uh, a much more benign example of that but the angle she takes is because she you know doesn't think it's important that we assign gender of any kind but I'm curious as someone who's just sort of missed the trend what has been your response watching other younger families and your newsfeed I'm imagining blow up with all these different creative endeavors or creative attempts. Yeah, or, and, yeah. and, and one way I'm like, Oh, we're celebrating with the family. I'm pro family. I'm pro community celebrating together. And on the other hand, I think, do we feel unnecessary pressure to like keep upping our game to, you know, have this reveal be, be really intriguing. What's the underlying thing behind that? Yeah. I, it feels like now the reveal party is the big deal. It's become the big, like um, who can come up with the craziest thing. I, again, I'm a little biased. Like I said, uh, I, your whole thing about knowing like I legitimately loved and I know I'm kind of an outlier in this, my wife and I, uh, but we legitimately love not knowing with all three of our kids. Really? Like legitimately, uh, if I had to do it over again, I don't think I'd still find out. And um, that makes sense. I don't think I'd still find out. So I wouldn't <laughs> find out. Yes. And so uh, for me, it feels like it's kind of taken on a whole thing. Like this is what everybody does. And you, you oh, do this. Right, and, right. and it's become like, who can top the last gender reveal that sure. you saw online. It's almost like try to make it go viral, but I get to enjoy. I love watching them. Oh, do you? Oh, I do. Because you, it's that genuine excitement and thrillingness of like, hopefully are we going to have a boy or a girl right now? And yeah. then, you know, I would hope that hopefully 99% of them they're, they're just overjoyed and like, yeah, one of my favorite ones though, I think it was a NFL player. Uh, he had already like four girls and people, you know, you could tell there was a sense of like, is he going to get his boy? Yeah. They were kind of tell the sense. And it, and it came out pink and another girl. And he, to see he was, you need to watch. I'd say, I don't remember who it is. So you can't, cause this would make you feel good about <laughs> because he was so genuinely excited. Oh, that's awesome. And you're like, okay, good. I thought where I was going to watch one where somebody got a little disappointed, like, Oh, we were going to have our boy. Right. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah. can I, can I speak to that? Cause I think there's on the side of that too. It's not always yep. just disappointment, but it is also, I've heard people say, if you are so sure it's one gender and you've kind of thought of names mm. and you've prepared yourself, particularly for the mother, like, oh, I've just been imagining that it's a little boy in there. And then I found out it's a girl. It's not disappointment that it's a girl, but it's sort of like, oh, I have to reshift my brain because for the last 16 weeks, I've sort of emotionally bonded yeah. to what I thought was a, a boy. And oh, that's now it's interesting. A, so it's, it's way more than it's way, just way more complicated. I think ever since having kids. I have a newfound respect and appreciation for the complexity, particularly of the psychology of motherhood. And like, how do you, because yeah. if it's in any way disappointment, then the next layer is, oh my gosh, am I a terrible person for being disappointed? Exactly. Oh my gosh, am I fit to be a parent at all? And that can kind of, you know, so with the rise of mom shaming, plus like what you're yeah. saying, the expectation to keep one upping these parties that can feel really crushing. I think when you mix all of that together. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, well, I get the gender reveal party. Those are helpful. What you're saying. I get the party. I, if we had a kid now, 
which you know, knock on wood. <laughs> but I knock feel, on wood what? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm good being done. <laughs> I'm good with my three. Uh, just want just want to be clear. Although if you, if I come in one day and I'm like, oh, a big surprise, I'll be genuinely excited. Right. How's that sound? I don't want to set my kid up. Who's going to hear this some other day? <laughs> I'm going to play this segment for them ten years from now. Oh no, you weren't a mistake. Oh wait a minute, never mind. That's somewhere. You're a surprise. Um, but yeah, you know, I to each their own. Like I do, I do like the fun and the celebrating of this. Someday we'll get into the. Uh, uh, her reasoning as to not, why not doing this, but uh, it is a fun thing in our culture, but don't put too much into it. You know, boy, girl, uh, y- you know, you're getting to be a parent. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of social media and sharing and all that stuff, story out of Forbes that I found is that social media has normalized the idea of sharing without consent. That's what we're going to talk about coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I think that might be the weirdest rejoin music video. Yeah, I yeah. never know what to do. You oh, gotta wait it till it comes in because oh. before that you feel like kind of like, are we like going to space? What's going on? I always there? feel like is this is this a like an emergency test? Is this a, <laughs> like put someone tuning in right at that moment, be like, oh, I guess oh. there's a tornado in town or <laughs> something not good is happening. That's funny. All right, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. That giggly voice you hear is Brian from. I giggle. You? Do. I do giggle. Do you think what's your giggle to chuckle ratio? Do you think? Ooh, <laughs> that is a deep one that I've never pondered. I think you've ne- you've pondered that before. No, I haven't. I think giggle, giggle two to one over chuckle. No kidding. All right. Probably. Give us an example of a giggle just so we can compare and contrast. I, I can't do that. on. You can't on no, command. I can't. I can't. Oh, so giggles more like. <laughs> <laughs> That's <a> chuckle. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know what you just did there. Yeah, I don't know what that was. That was more uh, hyena than anything, I think. Uh, all right. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com slash the common good. And uh, one of the topics that always seems to come up here at the Common Good is social media. And it's been interesting, too, because part of doing this show has led me to read stuff that I don't think I would have read otherwise. We've talked about accountability online and the people who are most likely to share articles without reading them or articles that are downright false, all of which are things that we've experienced, I'm sure, in some way, shape or form. And uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is some of the accountability that social media can provide. Mainly, you know, everyone has a camera on their phone now. So I feel like there is this potential like social collective accountability. But there's another thing, though, that I think is interesting the headline from Forbes here is that social media has normalized the idea of sharing without consent. Yep. And I'm I'm curious where you've seen that at play, just in, even in your own sphere. It doesn't even need to be your own life. But have you seen this concept somewhere where you step back and thought, oh, that's different. That's not the direction we should be heading. So oh, that's a good question in my own context. I haven't really seen it, except that every now and then you'll take a picture uh, with somebody like a group and especially if they have kids. Yeah, right. And the person will all of a sudden say, hey, please don't post that or, without you ever saying I'm going to post that. That's a good example. Like, yep. Oh, OK. Wonder why that is. And, you know, it's just somebody who's more private or maybe they don't want their, you know, or maybe they're conspiracy theorists thinking their stuff's going to get used or whatever. Um and so that's one. I do often think of it on Twitter with like these funny accounts where people are like falling or getting hurt. They're almost bloopers. Like, man, it, like if that were TV, they would have to ask those people, get a consent form, get it signed. But that's just not the mm. world we live in. Everybody has a uh, a smartphone. Uh, so therefore, everybody can just do it. And yeah, right. um, yeah I find that very interesting. Well, what's, uh, what's also curious, it was it's not that long ago that like newspapers were required 
to have all sorts of like assessments and red tape in place before publishing someone's photo. Yes. There was a necessary list of hurdles. And now, like if you just went out to a public place, you could take a picture of a group at the fountain or at a mall, yeah. instantly post it. You could unknowingly catch someone doing something wrong or questionable yep. and not be accountable to them at all. And it feels like like technology has grown faster than our etiquette. Does that make sense? Totally. And I don't know if that's just me feeling older or if that's if there really is that big a disparity or I, honestly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, like, do I need to just get with the times? Like, I don't know if this is such a dumb example, but if you ever like been scrolling through Facebook and you see a picture and you're like, boy, who's that out of shape? Oh, that's me. Oh, no. <laughs> Who got me? Like, it's not, you know, a head-on shot that you knew was being t- It was like the side view of you at a party. And you're like, oh, n- untag. They Hurry up. I gotta, how do I delete this from the internet? <laughs> untag like, me right now, right now. It's a very, very small, silly example. But, like, has technology grown faster than our etiquette? And is there any hope for that to catch up with how quick? I mean, we. I mean, we're essentially, we all have internet connected tele uh, internet connected cameras on our person at all times. Yep. That has a huge weight of responsibility and can be used for great social good. We've seen it to use, you know, track down legitimate criminals and to verify information when there are two sides of a story. Um, but what do you say about just the general lack of etiquette when it comes to sharing everything all the time, even if the, you know, the person involved in it has no knowledge of it. Yeah. And I think often it's not done maliciously. Like I can think of pictures that I've shared on Facebook with my family, with a bunch of other people. And I've never thought to be like, you guys good with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't know why we take that differently. I've never really thought of it, but it, this article does often to also talk about how there are companies now, like they're putting a lot of money into, uh, watching social media for bad things said about their company, anything else that gets put out there. And I wonder, Hmm. you know, it does make me think that as, as Christians, we need to, um, you know, we talk a lot about being trustworthy and being above board that we probably need to give this some thought. I, when I read this article, I don't think of it as like a malicious thing. I think of this as something that I've never given any thought to. Oh, interesting. It's just something that's not, um, uh, yeah, I haven't given much thought to this, but then when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, I suppose that is a bigger deal than probably what I'm giving it. Well, it's, it's talking a lot about consent too. And I, I think this one paragraph kind of says it all. It says we've stopped being fellow human beings going about our lives as a part of a shared community. Instead, we are all living a reality show wary that mm-hmm. at any moment, a total stranger might choose to share our private life with the entire world in the pursuit of viral fame and possible fortune. So, you know, some of the examples it gives us, uh, see someone with an unusual outfit at a shopping discount store, post a photo of them to social media for ridicule. Mm. See an elderly person trip and fall. Don't rush to help them. Pull out your phone and broadcast their injuries to the world. See someone being assaulted right in front of you. Don't intervene to stop it. Just live stream the assault to the entire world to ensure they are victimized forever. Sadly, these scenarios represent real life today. Every single one of those examples I've seen somewhere. And that impulse, I think, is uh, is frightening to me. Mm. It really is, man. It is. I hadn't thought about some of those. It reminds you of the, uh, do, do you remember the fi- the season, fi- the uh, series finale of Seinfeld that was all centered around them videoing the guy yes. getting assaulted, yes. the big, the fat guy in the car, and they were like just making fun of him, and right. then they got brought to trial, whatever. It was right. funny. But that's kind of the world we live in now. Yeah. And sometimes you do watch stuff online and you're like, maybe go help the old lady instead right. of filming her, or maybe go... And it is weird. I I don't have much to say on this because it's not something I've thought much about, to be honest with you, where I'm like, 
Yeah, I really wish we were more helpful and more lived in the moment and this and that. And we weren't always about what can I post to get people to like my stuff. Right. But I've never given much thought to like what well, it you, says about us as a culture. You, you talked a little bit about it when you were on sabbatical, some yeah. of that impulse even. And you're not capturing someone else's life, even capturing your own. One of the thoughts that you said you had was, oh, I can't wait to post this. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like when we were away on our trip, it was like a detox because I was like, Ooh, I'm at the, you know, I'm at the Mets game. Right. Oh, this would be fun. Like, oh, wait, no, I'm, I'm off of Facebook right now. Oh, we're on the beach. Wait, no. Right. Because I was living my best life, right? We always talk about how social media is putting right. out there your best life. Right. When I was out of town and not working, I'm like, hey, uh, this is like my best life. And then I, I kind of stopped myself. Well, it's the it's same really- sentimentality, though, isn't it? It's the it's a little bit safer because it's your family. Mm-hmm. But is it that kind of thinking just run out to its logical end Oh, if I'm going to think that way about all the good stuff in my life then I should also apply that to if this fight or this unfortunate outfit could potentially lead to my 15 minutes of fame then of course I'm going to capture it right I think we're ultimately driven as a culture by wanting to stand out from everybody else and how do we do that now it's by going viral it's by getting likes it's by people sharing your stuff and it sounds like this article is saying we are we are in, we are a culture that all too often will do that at the expense of other people. Yeah. And that hopefully that shifts. But I don't know. It seems like it's not shifting at the moment. Do you do you think it will eventually? When you weren't here last week, I said, I, I fear that humanity is going to hell quickly. So I don't have a high view on humanity right now. So I'm going with no. I heard you got a little despondent. while I was <laughs> I gone. Somebody called I you, needed you back. <laughs> somebody called you the religious Joe Walsh. I think. Was the, <laughs> is that right? All right. Well, coming up next, I didn't know this was a thing, but the first ever Fortnite World Cup solos, a 16 year old wins and bags three million dollars. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. We are Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. That intro is accurate. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is sitting right across the marble desk from me. Marble desk. Is it it marble? I don't know. Fake marble, maybe. (laughs) Faux, faux marble. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And I never in a million trillion years thought I would do a story about this. But here we are, Brian Fromm. A story about... Fortnite. Fortnite. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. So they had the first ever Fortnite World Cup the other day. It was held in New York City over the weekend, bringing together the gaming world's best to compete in a wildly popular battle royal game. So thankfully, my kids don't play Fortnite, but it has been a bit of an obsession for a lot of kids my my children's age uh, over the last couple of years. And first of all, the turnout, they said, was stunning. And you can see some of the pictures. I'd encourage you to Google it. It is a completely full arena. I'm not talking about like a small place. I'm talking about a large arena. Uh, And there was even a concert by electronic artist Marshmallow to kick things off. Hold on. What's the name? Marshmallow. Isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, my kids listen to him. 
Well, no, they don't listen to him. He comes on the radio. He's got some big songs. Oh, gosh, I feel so... Literally dresses like a marshmallow. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, you get, But notice how you scared me there. You're like, oh, my God, I've been saying this wrong the whole time. How? I'm curious. How do you think uh, he helps his music stay fresh? <laughs> I don't know, but every now and then he's just roasting. Oh! Yes. Boom! Okay, anyway. Uh, he, this uh, 16-year-old by the name of Kyle... Apparently, his nickname is Booga. Kyle Booga Giersdorf was the solo winner of the Fortnite competition. And again, people, I'd, I'd encourage you to go look at some of the tweets or the stories about it just to see how many people are there watching this video game uh, go on. Uh, but do you know how much he won? I do, I do know how much he won. Three million dollars. Winning the Fortnite World Cup earned you prize money on par with lower level salaries in other time tested professional sports. Uh, and he didn't, it wasn't even close. He won by kind of a blowout, whatever that is in the Fortnite world. And so I uh, want to ask you two questions. The first, does this redeem video games? Because so often we talk about millennials or even the high school kids and junior high kids about how they're wasting their life with video games, go outside. Do this. Uh, have we now redeemed video games that a kid won $3 million playing Fortnite? Asking me that is like asking if we've redeemed lottery tickets because somebody. <laughs> That's well good. That's <laughs> because good. one person won $3 million. That's well I don't know. off the top of your head right there. I, I, again, I don't mean to knock video games, cards on the table. I'm just not very good at them. Me like, neither. My skills ended at Mario Kart. That's about the last Love time. Mario Kart. I, let's have a Mario Kart yes. episode. It's just us playing Mario Kart. That's the last time I was even remotely good at video games. So I remember when I was in college, Halo was a big thing uh, and all the guys on my floor played Halo and I was trying to bond with the guys. So I played once and they were like, you're terrible at this. You can't yep. play anymore. I was like, okay. You and I need to play against each other because in college we had, uh, I think it was a James Bond game. It was a shooting game. And I remember it would be like in four quadrants on yeah, your TV. Right, right. So four of us, and I never won. Like I constantly never. would be, I'd be shooting at like the corner. Like I'd be stuck in the corner. Oh, I'm better than that. My roommate that. would come up behind me. I'm like, man, the sports games I could play, but it was so funny. But Your anyway. roommate Griffin Sontag would come up behind Griffin you. Sontag. Oh, yes. Griffin. Yes. Griff. Check Jeez. out. <laughs> you can listen to last week's podcast or Ian's Twitter feed. <laughs> How's that mean? He likes to tweet with you. Oh, he likes to tweet with with me so so you this doesn't redeem all video gaming still tell the kids to go outside is what you're seeing it was what I, you're saying I, it's it's not an either or i think that there's <laughs> a lot of good like hand eye stuff that can be developed with the greater increase of like society um like community gaming i think that's interesting to me mm -hmm. but yeah i i will be frustratingly old school on this one go get some dirt on your nails like go get some actual <laughs> sunlight go play wiffle ball climb a tree build a ramp like i'm and again, I'm not anti-TV or technology or yep. movies or any of that. I just think, you know where it starts to frustrate me a little bit? Can I just, can I just go unhinged yep. a little bit here? Yep. It's the 35-year-old yeah. guy mm. who will sink 15 hours of his weekend into playing games in the basement. That's the stuff that like blows my mind. Yeah. Like, where's your family? What are you? Yeah, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. Now, again, this is coming from someone who stays up late and often gets writing done. Like, I'm not. I know that those are not. That feels better. Totally dissimilar. It feels better, but like. I don't know. Again, a lot of that is because I was never good at it. So it's easy for me to say, I hey, we should limit video gaming. You're trying to be nice right now. You're right. Am I? If you're in the basement at the age of 35 playing lots of video games, 
Let's not just any lots. lots. Any is fine. Like that's a good release for people. I totally, yeah. you know, you, someone could make the same case that watching a movie is is just as much a waste of time. I don't think it is, but you know, you could make the case. Yeah, a couple hours here or there. If that's a good, it's a community builder. It's stress relieving. I say knock yourself out. And you have two sons, so. Yep. Obviously, girls can play video games as much as boys. I'm just telling you, when they hit junior high and high school, from experienced both uh, right now, yeah. it happens. To, the boys are a lot more uh, drawn to the video games. Yeah, and uh, I do know some who it's it's an unhealthy amount. Like, yeah, it's uh, like uh, we are joking about it, but like five, six, eight hours during a summer day, and you're like a day listening to some of their parents on them be like, kick them out of the house. Yeah, no like, kidding. Get them out of the house. But- Why is that so rare? Why? Like, is it, I get now, like mine are so young. There are certainly days where like, okay, just put on the wiggles. Yeah. I can't deal with the screaming right now. But when they're like 10, 11, I mean, I know that they still fight and yeah. they can still be, you know, they can still try your patience, but sending them outside is just as much. Yeah. It's just as easy, isn't I, it? I have my guesses, but you're talking to someone who has kicked kick the kids out of the house guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, you've watched enough. Get out. You, you know, do other parents do the same thing? Like when you kick Most them out, do. are there other kids for them to play with still? A couple. We don't live in a neighborhood with a ton of kids. Okay. But yeah, they, they're out and about. Most kids are in the summertime are either like in organized camps or outside playing. But, okay. Uh, but here's my other question. 16 years old, $3 million. What would Ian Simpkins at 16 have done with $3 million? I, I probably invested in IRA. <laughs> and, uh, I'd, I'd find some good offshore stocks and bonds. And, uh, you, know, and you talk like that at 16. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe get a used geoprism. Yeah. Um, geoprism. Wow. That's a throwback. And a used. You just yeah, $3 million. Yeah. yeah I want to be, be frugal. I want, that three, I want that $3 million to last me for a while. I honestly don't know. I mean, there's no way my parents would let me touch more than $20 of that. Um, with good reason, by the way, 16-year-old Ian did not make good choices. So 16-year-old Ian with $3 million makes expensive bad choices. I don't know. What would you do? you have any idea? Uh, yeah, I was trying to think of that coming in, and it's. Uh, I don't think I would have done good stuff with it. And like you, I don't think my parents would have let me touch it. And I'm guessing that's probably part of this. Although, by the way, second place in this one, like one point five million, third place, like there was a lot of money that went out on this. Um, but I would say that, uh, yeah, I hopefully my parents would have taken away from him. Sixteen years old, I think though I would have. Uh, uh, I think I think there would have been some uh, th- there would have been some baseball games gone too. I would have traveled a little bit with my parents, but could we like go see the Mets play over there? I think that like, it's on been... it's on me, it's on me, mom. <laughs> would that have been weird? Like a weird yeah. dichotomy of like offering to buy you dinner for got, your parents? You guys got me to where I am today. <laughs> <laughs> like you're having dinner, the three of you, and the check comes. You're like, mom, I got this. I got this one. It is so dumbfounding though, because my daughter is in November is turning 16. So the thought of her winning $300, yeah, right. let alone $3 million is, is but it's just, not uncommon though. There's all sorts of YouTube stars that are younger YouTube than 10. That professional make tennis players right. or something right. like that. Yeah, no, I totally get it. But now that I have a kid that age, it's like, excuse me. Like I can't fathom myself having $3 million. Right. I, so I don't know. Obviously the answer is you put it in a trust and they can't touch it for a while, but it is, it is wild to think about at the age of 16, if given full license, like your parents said, Hey, it's your money. Right. What would you do? I would probably spend that money really fast and in a really unhealthy way. Well, I didn't get a chance to ask you though. Does this story for you at all redeem video games? No, I was, I was being really sarcastic. Not even a little bit. No, not not one tick upward. Like, okay, there's some value. And I don't, my, my son, like, especially will play video games with his sisters sometimes, but it's always 
it's dumb games and it's quick. They don't play for a long time. But so they're I, not hooked. Like for them, it's not no, a thing. No, and and I honestly have worries about not necessarily like these kids are like professional. This is like a professional sixteen-year-old tennis player. Right. This is the equivalent. This is a different category. Right. But I do have concerns with the amount of video games being played by. Um, being kids and t- real fast there was a story there was disney channel my kids were watching a, t- a show the other day and the the family's in hawaii it's a sitcom right and the two boys are just playing video games on their handheld and dad goes hey you've got all this ocean get off the, your controller and whatever and the kid goes yeah but the graphics are better on this <laughs> and that's kind of what's Oof. going on and so I, I do actually have fears about video games i could be the get off the lawn guy like oh these kids you know go outside and I'm, especially when you make that voice yeah. <laughs> uh, these kids these kids <laughs> <laughs> but no but i that's why i was kind of sarcastically saying it does it redeem it for you but uh, we'd love to know what you guys think does this story at all redeem what's been your experience or exposure to video games is there a right and wrong way to use them or utilize them we'd love to hear your thoughts you can go on facebook or on the website and coming up next i want to talk a little bit about the brain science behind giving up so many of us struggle with getting over the hurdle of powering through a perseverance i want to look at the brain science of giving up that's coming up next on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hello my friends it is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm here on the common good you can find us a couple places Facebook.com slash the common good radio show. Is there a Facebook.org? Someone get that? I, you should look it up right now. I'm dead. Or, or Facebook.edu, Facebook.gov. That would be, be <laughs> Facebook.gov. I'd imagine they probably already bought all those up. Either way, I'm talking so out of my element. I have no idea. I'm going to, this is, this is a, this could be dangerous, but while you're setting this up, I'm going to go Facebook.org. Let's That's see a good that idea. Is. Yeah, let's see what happens. It might get me in trouble. You know, you can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good. Plus, we're podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you like, subscribe and review. That legitimately helps us. Thank you so much for doing that. You've had a couple of seconds now, Brian. Is there a Facebook.org? They all go back to regular Facebook. That's what I thought, right? They just bought up all of the, uh, yep. what do they call those? Suffixes? Suffixes? Those, <laughs> are, those are domains. Names. Right? Nah, but the, the particularly. Facebook, Facebook.gov goes nowhere. No kidding. It goes nowhere. It says can't reach that page. Oh, that goes to Cambridge Analytica. I think is where that goes. That's <laughs> all right of the- my stuff is being sucked <laughs> out right out of my computer. That's where it's all going anyway. There right. are people in their cars are going, stop, stop. Brian's computer is, is, currently, this- is currently on fire why, right now. So. When I played to .gov, why did it all come up in Russian, oh, Russian Facebook? Boy. Oh, boy. Let me, uh, let me pull out of this tailspin. Okay, so. You were mentioning this at the break. One of the things I'm really interested in brain science stuff, which is so weird because I don't understand most of it. So even even at at community, a lot, a lot of time I work with our research group. And one of the things I'm often really interested in is the brain science behind something. And so now whenever I talk with the researcher, he's like, OK, you have this request and this commentary and this word study. Ah, There's Ian's brain science. So I'm kind of becoming typecast as that guy, which yep. I'm kind of fine with. But this is a perfect example of a topic that I find really interesting and that is mostly over my head. I, got, I found three articles. You, knew, you and I were reading them. We're like, what? What are they saying? I what is- felt, there's times you read stuff and you feel legitimately dumb. All right. This is one of them. Like literally one of them. I told you I'm excited as a summary statement and I don't understand the summary <laughs> statement because it's out of UW medicine. And I, I literally. Oh, anyway. 
I don't understand it, but it's good. Well, I think you and I eventually got to what the point of it is, and it is pretty cool, but when they use lots of words that you literally can't even comprehend, it's well, really funny. No, okay, so let me at least set it up, and then it'll, be, it'll become very clear once Brian and I delve into territory that is we have no business being in. But uh, the headline reads, What Happens in the Brain When We Give Up? So trying to understand the brain science of like emotional, physical fatigue, why it is that we we stop at a certain point and simply give up. And that doesn't just, that's not just speaking uh, in terms of like physical exhaustion. That's mm-hmm. also when we give up on a dream or we give up on a task. And so I'm, I think understandably really intrigued by this idea because yep. I feel like that's something we all struggle with, right? We all struggle with persevering or yes. climbing one more hill or wanting to give up and yeah right yep. we all we've all faced wanting to give up so here's how it begins it says inside the brain a group of cells known as uh nociceptin neuron mm. is that right i was gonna go nociceptin nociceptin neurons get very active before mice give up on reaching hard to get rewards research report the cells emit Nisoceptin, a complex molecule that suppresses dopamine, a chemical largely associated with motivation. So essentially what's happening is they're measuring these levels in the brains of these mice and they're finding, oh, there's uh, there's a correlation right before they give up. This gets really active and then they give up. And I think that's really interesting when it pertains to how we understand why we give up and what motivates us and what drives us and what happens in the brain right before we pull the ripcord and kind of goes on to talk a little bit about how we can actually use this as humans yeah. to better counteract some of those tendencies to just sort of throw up our hands and wave the white flag often far too soon. Yeah, it says the big discovery is that large complex neurotransmitters uh, have a very robust effect on animal behavior by acting this way. And then it says researchers say this discovery could lead to helping people find motivation when they are depressed and conversely decrease motivation for drugs and substance abuse. Oh, Basically, it's saying if we can get into those neurons. Right. And I, this is where it gets like where my mind gets blown. But you're also like the ethics of this. If we could get into the neurons and kind of, uh, you know, block them or make them um what would be the opposite of block? Release them. Thank you. I people. I'm so dumb right now. Uh, if we could release them that you could almost uh, you could create motivation or decrease motivation. So that could help. Like it said, when you're wanting to give up or when depression and, and you know, so when you when someone is in the midst of depression, hmm. uh, they, they don't feel motivated to really do anything. Right. Or when we're talking about things like drug addiction or smoking or other things, are there ways to tamp down the motivation uh, and this is really fascinating that I, it, I think if I just understood even half of what scientists are doing and on the verge of, I think it just blows our minds. Okay. So we're clearly not scientists, either no. of us. Right. So I want to ask you, I mean, you had a cool white shirt on earlier. I did have a cool laboratory esque shirt on <laughs> what morally ethically speaking are the cautions to biochemical interference in our brain to motivate or demotivate based on what we see as valuable or damaging. I honestly don't know because really? I, I there there feels like um, there feels like something there. There feels like something dangerous there. But isn't that the case with all medication? Sure. Right. With yeah. all medication, aren't we messing with brain chemistry or nerves or whatever? I would say risk over danger. But yeah, I, yeah. See, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and so I don't know if there's any ethical in this. This is probably where the, we get out over our skis a little bit um, because it, you do like if if someone who is in in the midst of depression is really having a hard time being motivated to do anything. 
you would like to think that that science could help with that. Right. Uh, If uh, somebody is struggling with addiction. Yep. Uh, you would like to think that if science has the ability to play into that right. solution, then we would want to embrace that. So I don't know what the dangers are. I would guess that there are smarter people out there going, oh, here's what the dangers are. I'd actually like to hear it because I'm not saying there are no dangers. I'm I'm seeing the benefits here. Yeah. And there very well could be dangers ethically or physically that, that I'm not taking into account. Well, and I know that there are complications. I mean, that's the way that dopamine receptors in the brain work is a lot of how uh, addictions take hold in our mind because mm-hmm. uh, we require bigger and bigger waves of dopamine to receive the same sort of high because new dopamine receptors open up, which is how the nature of like a little drinking thing grows into a big drinking thing. A small drug thing grows into a big drug thing. A little pornography thing Mm -hmm. goes into a big pornography Mm -hmm. thing. So whenever we're messing with dopamine and dopamine receptors and you know, just the happiness, feel good motivation chemical that always should be like a little bit of a concern. But like I was talking about yesterday, you know, we had Jamie Torkowski uh, in an interview form speaking to our church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how, he was standing on huge platforms talking about the need for church, you know, for the church to talk about mental health and how difficult secretly it was for him to be okay with taking medication for his own depression. There's something in the church that was this weird hurdle. And I thought about another podcast I was listening to on the way up here, actually, where they were saying, uh, so-and-so one of the co-hosts won't be on the show today because he's ill. And one of the other co-hosts said, actually, when we say ill, he's, he's battling some serious depression right now. Wow. And he actually asked us to speak about it like this, because if Brian Fromm, if you broke your leg, there'd yep. be zero shame no. for you to like, hey, I broke my leg. I'm yep. getting the cast. I can't drive yep. to the studio. You got you to gotta handle on your own. There'd be not a, not a whiff of shame. But if like you were spiraling with some mental health stuff, that's all couched in shame yep. and guilt. And you would probably, both of us would feel we'd feel less, we feel more reluctant to explain, Hey, I I'm in a real dark spot right now. I don't yes. think I can come in today. And that I think shows part of the issue. Part of the issue that I think some of these conversations are so tough to have is because there's all this nuance associated Agreed. with it. That makes it, I don't know. I think it's really important for us to have these discussions, not just how these chemicals can be managed, but like what it means socially for us to be okay with people sharing these stories. That's even the article you and I did that story we did maybe a week ago or so about the state that is allowing kids now take mental health days. And even that on our Facebook page, there was a little bit of a debate going on like, well, well, what's next, you know, versus other people going like, good, we're teaching our kids. Uh, I do think that we don't have a great handle. And for some reason, uh, maybe it's just my experience. Maybe this isn't true. P- I'm painting too much with a broad brush, but it actually feels like, like the church, big C kind of, uh, is lagging. And oh, so that's why yes. your church is doing that good thing, a good work by having that kind of interview. Uh, but where we're lagging in not just our understanding, but in our sympathy and in our mm. uh, embracing that people are just as can be just as sick in their head as they are with a broken leg right. or a disease of some sort. And uh, and so that's why you read articles like this. You're like, man, it, the complexities of the human mind also are so much deeper uh, than anything that I've I've probably given even much thought to. Yeah, that's true, man. This is a topic that really does kind of boggle my mind, but one that I want to keep yeah. leaning into. And the opening of this segment is a good example of you and I both saying, oh, gosh, this is so over our heads. And I think sometimes the temptation when it feels over our heads is to shy away. Yeah. Don't shy away. Keep leaning in. Keep reading. Keep hearing stories. Well, coming up next, uh, why one mom has chosen to foster migrant children. We're going to talk about that story coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. This is actually Brian's band from high school. It is. He doesn't talk a lot about it, but yep. you should be very proud of the work yep. you did in this band. Yep. It's got a good groove to it's it, man. Good. It was good. When did you first learn to play the tambourine so gracefully? Uh, it was more around the age of seven or eight. I had some, I was a little socially awkward, so <laughs> I had a tambourine. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, I named it Tammy. Obviously. And Tales all this time. Yep. <laughs> we, it was really my only friend at that age. And so one of the side benefits of that was being able to learn how to really rock the tambourine. And, and it's, it continued this day. But then I made friends later and. Tammy ended up on a shelf. It was were like a those Disney friends movie. other musicians or other instruments? No, interestingly, no. They were real people. They were real kids. And so I just was a late bloomer. So tambourine, Tammy, if you will. I will. <laughs> ended up just on a shelf. Wow. But every now and then, we, you know, I would look up and I'd be like, mm, and I would just play the tambourine. And you just alone in your room, just relive, relive the glory days. Yep, yep. And little did I know that that would then lead to great high school band. And um, it was, it was. There's great YouTube clips of me playing the tambourine. I'd encourage you to check it out. So this is some next level nonsense, by the way. I'm I'm really impressed with just the I'm calm, tired. just the demeanor that you maintained. That yes. was really thank you, really impressive. We need the fake whole segments. Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea at all. No, because someone's gonna edit those and use sound clips of us saying insane things as a joke and say that they're Tammy. real. Yeah, right. Did you know Brian didn't have any friends but a tambourine? It's <laughs> not true. It's not true. a lot. All right. <laughs> All right, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com slash the common good. And here is what I think is just a feel good story. The headline says, uh, quote, I know that they're cared for why one mom has chosen to foster migrant children. Hmm. It opens like this. Um, On a hot Maryland summer day, two toddlers play in the waiting area of a community pool. Their glee is uncontainable as they dump water filled plastic pails over each other's heads. A few weeks earlier, these little ones would not come close to the water. When they both came, they were terrified of the pool, says their foster mother, Christy. Terrified. And now we kind of have to stay in this pool because she will jump headfirst into the big pool. Mm. Christy is not a typical foster mother. She takes in migrant children from Central America who have been separated from their families at the border. Due to federal rules, NPR is unable to identify the names of the children in Christie's care and is only using her first name. And mm-hmm. I think that premise, as best I can tell in the story, Christie doesn't come from a lot of money. Mm-mm. She has no background in, in politics. She's just someone that sees this need in the world and says, okay, well, I can't help everyone, but I can help someone and she's doing it. And I don't know how the story strikes you with how heated this debate is right now over this particular topic. Is, is there difficulty in, in your sphere for people to even celebrate stories like this because of how tied it is to policies and Twitter rants and all that? Or, or is this just by and large through and through, uh, this is just a good story of a woman doing a good thing. Yeah. And I think that's why I was excited for us to talk about it because I don't know, for me, I just look at this and I'm like, I just want to cheer. I'm like, awesome job. We like to, we try to highlight stories of people living out their faith and living out the gospel. Uh, but I also know there are people who, when you just talk about migrant children, it immediately becomes political and it makes them angry. And I guess I want to say migrant children exist. This isn't a policy question. This is what can we do to help children, but children who are out of no fault of their own are in this situation. So what can we as the church, what can we just as caring Americans, regardless of your policy, what can we do? And here was the most uh, challenging line in this. It says, 
Christy has fostered dozens of migrant children. Dozens, wow. While she and her husband balance their jobs and raise their own children. Her family recently moved to a larger house to provide more space for the foster kids. Wow. Like Dave said, they've literally put their money where their mouth is. Like they're not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with speaking uh, for or against a policy or saying we should do this. But this family said, you know what? We're going to do this. We're stepping up to the plate. Uh, to do this. So it says she's paired with kids through Bethany Christian Services, uh, one of the many nonprofits that contracts with the government to place unaccompanied minors. And uh, it, it's it's just impressive. I guess we want to put this out there for a lot of people who probably like myself who will struggle with, you know, what you can believe about a lot of things, but what can you do? Yeah, right. What, what can you ever do? And this is just a normal family doing something. Uh, and they probably started by going, well, let's just foster one kid and just be part of the solution. And it, one kid turned into two kids and and it became a passion. Right? Yeah, it became right. a passion. Start walking and see what God does. And man, really, really impressive story. I love what she says here. It says our conviction for taking in migrant children has only gotten stronger as time goes on. Any kid that's in my house is at least while they're here safe. I know that they're safe. I know that they're loved. I know that they're cared for. Mm. And anyone who's, especially anyone who's been a parent knows like how strong a feeling that is to, to protect marginalized, hurting, young, vulnerable people. And I'm wondering Mm. for you, what, if if you had to imagine backlash to the story, what would that backlash sound like? Oh, I don't know how much backlash there would be to somebody helping kids. I think people would immediately want to go to well. Why are there unaccompanied, mi- uh, you know, migrant kids? Yeah. What is the what is the root cause? What did their right. parents do to leave? The, you know, why are we picking up the pieces? But I think most people would go. But I'm happy somebody's picking up the pieces. You think so? I, I think so. Uh, you could disagree with policy and still have a heart and be like, you know what? I want I want kids to. Nobody wants to see kids be the ones that are bearing the brunt of whether it be parents, bad choices or their bad policies of a, of a nation, depending on what side of the debate you fall on. Uh, people want kids to be taken care of. And so I, I think that the backlash would be more about what got the, these kids into these situations and not, well, yeah. you shouldn't be helping the kids. Right. Like, um, I, I would hope not. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope you're right. It does feel like, those are the the systemic questions are the right questions though. Like mm-hmm. that's that's the stuff that I struggle with because my my brain will only seem to allow me to enjoy the story so far mm. because I can't help but go to but why why is this happening in the first place, right? Like and that is it's one thing, you know, what was the quote I used a couple of weeks ago about well, when I when I fed the homeless, they called me a saint. When I asked why we had homeless, they called <laughs> me a communist. Mm. You know, like so often I think we're way more comfortable uh, in the sphere of like one to one caring for people. But when we actually ask the bigger systemic questions, that's when everyone gets really uncomfortable. That's when everyone starts arguing about their politics and their ethos and their ethics. And I think we need to get better at that. And I think it maybe starts with stories like this, because yeah. in my opinion, Christy has earned a seat at the table to weigh in on these topics. Yeah. So for me and you, and we pretty much self admittedly have said like, a lot of these topics are way above our heads, yeah. way, way above our pay grades. And, and honestly, something that, you know, we've had very little experience in. Do we, 
would we be wise to actually allow someone like Chrissy to weigh in on some of these conversations politically and socially in terms of policy? Like, hey, as someone who's walked a mile in some of these shoes, what do you think we need to do? Like, yeah. is there wisdom in inviting that voice in perspective or is it just sort of like, uh, we're glad you're doing this nice thing and uh, why don't you let us take care of the policy stuff? Yeah, it's uh, it's a whole concept of like, uh, relying on the people who have skin in the game. Like this lady's got skin in the game. She says, but that doesn't make you any more. It doesn't. Uh, it would probably make you more passionate, but you're right. It doesn't make, it doesn't make, it make you, you a more qualified. Person. Right. Sure. Sure. I like this story because I like to say it, it's before even discussing the policy. Let's make sure the kids are taken care of. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and then discuss policy. And uh, yeah, I find this story to be heartwarming and um, hopefully challenging. Hopefully, for a lot of us who, regardless of the topic, yeah, who want to say, I want to do migrant children or abortion or teenage mom, whatever, uh, homelessness, to say, is are there steps I can take to be part of a solution? Yeah. Maybe not a policy solution, as you're saying, but at right. least to help the hurting, yeah. to wade into the pool that she didn't, her and her husband didn't jump into the deep end. It doesn't sound like they waded in and now they're in the deep end. Yeah, right. And, uh, and I, I, I respect that and appreciate that. Makes me think of a, I think it was a D.L. Moody story where a lady approached him and she was complaining to him about the way someone else in their church was evangelizing. And D.L. said, uh, I like the way she's evangelizing more than the way that you're not evangelizing. <laughs> I started saying she she's at least got some skin in the game, right? She's yep. she's at least trying. And I think even that logic, obviously, you can't apply to every circumstance. But like, I yeah, I applaud Christy for putting her money where her mouth is. Her and her husband getting a bigger house to care for kids because... I don't know, man. In a lot of ways, that that feels like Jesus to me, and I, yep. I love sharing stories like that. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with some interweb insanity, just some nonsense that not Brian or I, but our executive producer found online, and we're going to read these stories sight unseen with some accompanying sound effects. It's going to be terrifying or hilarious or both. I uh, hope that you'll join us for that. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing, and that is that it is the end of the show today. We're glad that you've joined us on this Tuesday afternoon, but we always end every show with craziness from the minds of our two producers, our executive producer, Keith Conrad, uh, and as we've just begun to refer to our John, just producer John. <laughs> no and last name. Nope, just, 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 just producer John. Just producer John. We're going to get that one to stick. Uh, so these are sight unseen. We are going to read these, or I'm going to read these. And uh, they're going to be, uh, if they insult you, then not our fault. If uh, they make you laugh, we're laughing with you. But here we go. First one, South Africa. Wow. Not sure we've done one from South Africa before. First one is South Africa. Man drives car into ocean on a dare. A man drove his car into the ocean while holidaying on the south coast of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa on Monday. Nailed it. Thank you. Shelly Beach Ski Boat Club Secretary Brenda Johnson on Tuesday said she was in her office when the bizarre incident occurred. Somebody came running into my office and said, there's a car in the bay. When I went to look, the car was floating and the man was standing there giving people the thumbs up, indicating he was okay. Police said that when she checked the ski club CCTV footage, she was shocked. When I checked our footage, I saw that he just drove into the ocean. When we heard later that it was a dare, one of our tractor drivers pulled the vehicle out. Normally, the only things to go into the ocean here are boats. To see a car go in and see it done deliberately was strange. It was not clever. I triple dog dare you. 
<laughs> oh, boy. Pennsylvania. Man throws drum set at neighbor, punches officer in the face at block party. A police officer needed more than a dozen stitches to his face after authorities say he was punched by a man accused of being aggressive to his neighbors at a block party. Pittsburgh police said they had to use a taser to bring 43-year-old Charles O'Leary in the custody. According to police, it all started around 6.30 p.m. Sunday when officers were called to the block party over a fight. Investigators say O'Leary came out of his home as the party was going on and threw part of the drum set at one of his neighbors. The man suffered a large bruise on his leg at the result. Some of the screaming was inaudible because he was screaming so loudly. When police arrived, they tried to handcuff O'Leary, but authorities say he became aggressive toward the officers. When asked him for identification, he said, what, do you want to shoot me? Police say O'Leary punched the arresting officer in the face. The officer then used his taser and took O'Leary into custody. O'Leary is facing charges of aggravated assault, resisting arrest, criminal mischief, simple assault, and simple trespass. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Every part of that story should have been avoided by that man. Seriously. Yeah, I'm guessing if we had had more of this story, alcohol would have been in there somewhere, but... Uh, yes, that was a, that was a w- unwise choices. Next story is out of India. Wandering cow interrupts lesson in college classroom. A college student in India captured video of a stray cow wandering through a classroom in the middle of a session. The video, recorded at the Indian Institute of Technology's Bombay campus in Poway, po- 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 shows the cow causing surprise and confusion among the students and their teacher when it walks into the lecture hall and strolls across the room. Students said the cow had apparently wandered into the building to escape heavy rains. That makes sense. Yeah. IIT officials said they are investigating the incident and looking into ways of keeping the numerous animals that live wild near the campus from wandering into buildings. Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you <laughs> care about. Well, this is totally normal in India. Cause the is it air, totally air, normal? Yes, it's completely normal because uh, Eric Dish, who was here with us a couple weeks ago, he was there for 10 years and say, if there was a pile of rocks, you and a cow in the middle of the road and a car had to get around or through someone, it would hit you. Because if it hit the cow, that's someone's soul. And if it's but a pile it, of rocks, it, it's going to damage your car, so they go but through if you. But it it's you, that's your soul. <laughs> Correct. But, I mean, you know, you'll come back as a cow and you'll be sacred. Fascinating. It's crazy. Maryland, TSA finds missile launcher in man's checked baggage. Transportation Security Administration official officers detected a missile launcher in a man's checked luggage Monday morning. At the Baltimore-Washington International Airport, the traveler, a resident of Texas, told TSA officials he was an active military personnel member traveling home from Kuwait, and he wanted to keep the missile launcher as a super souvenir. Perhaps he should have picked up a keychain instead, said the TSA spokesperson. TSA officials detained the man for questioning, then released him. He was able to catch his flight. Officials confiscated the device, which was not live, and sent it to the state fire marshal to be disposed of safely. I just love making things go kablooey. <laughs> like the fact that he was coming back from Kuwait, he wanted a, he wanted a little uh, souvenir. What other I souvenir would you get, I guess? you know? <laughs> Wait. That was important to him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Last one. Of course, it's Florida. Surfer bitten by shark goes to bar instead of hospital. A professional surfer in Florida was injured Saturday when a shark bit his elbow, leaving him bloody and with deep tooth marks. Surfer Frank O'Rourke was surfing at Jacksonville Beach around 3.30 p.m. when the shark latched onto his arm, knocking him off his board. O'Rourke's friend, R.J. Berger, uh, 
saw the whole thing happen. He was right there behind the wave, and boom, that's when he got hit. Berger said O'Rourke was treated by lifeguard but did not go to the hospital, even though Berger said he thinks his friend could have used a stitch or two. Instead, he immediately went to the bar because he was like, hey, I got bit by a shark, and people were like, I'll buy you drinks. So he hung out at the pier. A surfer himself, Berger says, it won't stop him from hitting the waves. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's happened to a couple of my friends. It doesn't bother you, but I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's nothing much you can do to really stop that, so try not to worry about it. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. <laughs> you got to love surfers, man. Ah, if it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. Let's get a drink. That's Gnarly. good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's been a fun show. We're glad you joined us. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.